growing up in uh, cold northern New England, um, and not really being a kind of a touchy-feely person, I always thought the phrase, the laying on of hands, was weird. Now, as Christians, we need to acknowledge that we use some weird phrases at times. Some of them are weird, yet have roots in the Bible, like the phrase, hedge of protection, which actually comes from a statement, just so you know, that Satan made in the book of Job. Other phrases are weird, and somewhere along the line, we just kind of made them up. Um, It's only Christians and murderers who really talk about doing life together. I try. I shouldn't even try. Somewhere along the line, we replaced the biblical notion of prayer and meditation on God's Word with either doing devotions or having my quiet time, which are, let's face it, those are both strange things to say. Um, unless maybe your quiet time or when the kids are down for a nap. And I'm not trying to be nitpicky. I don't really care if we use those phrases or not. That's fine. I just want to acknowledge that they're strange. Those are strange things to say. They're things that really only Christians say. Of course, nothing is as strange as what I believe is the king of all weird Christian phrases, love on, which is not only a weird thing to say when we say we just need to love on so-and-so, kind of creepy. And it really just means encourage. Again, I don't, I don't care if you say it. I just probably won't. But as I've studied the Bible and as I've prepared sermons and we've done life together, I've come around to this idea of this, this good biblical example of the laying on of hands. And not only is it a, a good thing, but it's also important even if it is a little strange. And just as an aside, we need to be clear, we are a strange people. Christians are strange. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation He came down from heaven. He he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the, at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic universal church, an apostolic church, We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection from the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Amen. I didn't make that up, by the way. That's the Nicene Creed. 
Um, That's what Christians believe. And those are strange things as far as the world is concerned. Every single thing in there is strange as far as the world is concerned. Here's why I've come to appreciate this kind of weird phrase of the laying on of hands, and even the imagery of laying on hands. In the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, verses 18 to 20, we read this. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eliezer, the the priest, and and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. This was simply a a commissioning service. He charged Joshua with the the leadership, the, the, the leading of God's people. We see a very similar commissioning service of the the priests in Numbers chapter 8. I think it was in verse 10. And then in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, we read this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that is Paul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They followed the example of Moses in the Old Testament. And then Paul, who was commissioned there in Acts 13, he passes on this example when he reminded Timothy of the time that Timothy himself had been set apart for ministry. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, Paul says this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, Paul says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul's letters here to Timothy and Titus are widely known as the pastoral epistles. They're instructions for pastors and elders really for churches. Um, If you want to know what my job description is, start here, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Start by reading these letters and go from there. So twice twice in these brief letters, really in 1 and 2 Timothy, um, we read about, about hands being laid on Timothy as a ceremonial way of, of commissioning him into ministry. So I just read the 2 Timothy passage. Paul says something similar in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll get to that in just a minute. And by the way, as we think about weird ceremonies, have you ever been to a ribbon-cutting ceremony with giant scissors? That's weird. Have you ever seen people in suits with a chrome-plated shovel break ground and then walk away and never do another bit of digging in their lives? 
Christians aren't the only ones who do odd ceremonial things. And so I'm kind of pushing myself to get past this. Um, We need to really look at the importance behind this ceremony. And so this morning, um, as we as a church charge Steve and really all of the elders, even the whole church, even all of us, we're going to look at a, at a summary statement that Paul makes in his instructions to Titus here. It's Titus chapter 2, verse 15, which simply says this, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Let's just stop and, and pray as we think about that statement. Lord, I pray that you would um, give us what we need today. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray for the um, importance of what we're doing today. That this is so much bigger than just one man or uh, one little group of men amongst a hundred or so other people, Lord. But that this is a recognition that this is your church. I pray that those things would burn within us, Lord. The truth that this is your church. Given. Bought with your blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. I want to acknowledge right off the bat this morning that I kind of alluded to this, but this is really more of a dedication of all of the elders, a dedication really of this whole church than it is about one man. So we are committing today, or or kind of recommitting, as Paul wrote, uh, to not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord and to commit to share in suffering as necessary for the gospel by the power of God. For we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We are not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel. Well, I'm sure I've said this many times, but the the reformers, in their efforts to define what is and what is not a a true church, they came up with three criteria. A true church is an assembly of saints where first and foremost, the gospel is rightly preached. The gospel must be rightly preached in order for there to be a church where the saints have assembled. Second, the sacraments or the ordinances of baptism and communion are rightly administered. And then third, church discipline is properly maintained. That just means that sin is being dealt with and not allowed to to fester or run rampant in the church. And then kind of in addition to that, I know I've spoken over the years of the facts that that those things presume a, a church membership. So for example, we are told in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That verse refers to really the necessity of church discipline, of watching over their souls, but also of the relationship of the body to the leadership. Specific elders will give specific uh, accounts to a specific God for specific people, not visitors. Not, not occasional attenders 
Only those who have submitted, who have agreed to put themselves under the care of those who agree to keep watch over their souls. That's what that verse says. And all of this points to the absolute necessity of biblically qualified leaders. And by that I mean pastors and elders, which are technically the same office. So every pastor is an elder. So Titus, as we look at this book here, in many ways the task of Titus had to have been almost completely overwhelming. It had to have been almost completely overwhelming. Paul reminds Titus of his task in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, we're not sure if this means that he was to appoint uh, elders in every town in which they had already planted churches. Probably it means appoint elders in every town. Crete is actually a pretty good-sized piece of land, island in the Mediterranean. But regardless, this work was incredibly important. It was incredibly huge. This was work. Let me show you why this is so important. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28, 29, and 30, and I'm going to keep going back to this, so just listen to these verses. Paul says this to the the elders of the church at Ephesus. He says this, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This work of the elder is about the care of souls. This is about the very lives of men and women, boys and girls. This is about caring for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so Paul lays out here in this letter, this, a charge to, to Titus that is no less applicable to us as 21st century Americans. Um, just let your, let your eyes kind of roll over Titus chapter 1. We read this a few minutes ago, but just kind of look and, and let your eyes kind of roll over Titus chapter 1. And you, you can see at the beginning, the first, say, four verses, Paul begins with a, with a warm, loving, kind of gospel-saturated greeting in those first few verses. And then he follows that with an explanation of of what kind of man these elders that Titus is to appoint, what kind of men they must be. Especially, he says, in contrast with the world. You can see that in verses 10 to 16, what the world of the Cretans were like. And then he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's the command that starts chapter 2, right there in the very first verse. And then from chapter 2, verse 2 through verse 14, he instructs Titus in some of the specifics. The, the, the who and the what that accords with sound doctrine. And so he picks out four different groups of people that really makes, makes up the entire church. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Basically everybody in the church. So he instructs them in the, in the who and in the what and, and even in the why. Really verses 11 through 14 talk about the why he wants them to instruct them. And chapter 2 verse 15 is a summary of all of this. Declare these things. 
exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's look at each of these commands. He begins with, declare these things. So, Titus 2.15, declare these things. What things? What things? Well, in the immediate context of Titus, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the resulting transformation God's grace brings. Look up at the previous verses, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Here's what the elders are to declare specifically. Every elder, not just pastors, they are to declare this. First, Jesus is our great God. Jesus is our great God. He says that there in verse 13. Now that is not to say that Jesus is the Father, The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and neither is the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, yet they are one. That's plain Orthodox Christian belief about the Trinity of God, the Trinitarian uh, characteristics of who God is. But remember the warning in Acts chapter 20. See, we live in an age when some false teachers are actively leading whole churches away by speaking twisted things, even about this basic doctrine. Things like, Jesus was a manifestation of God, which is the historic heresy of modalism, that God the Father became Jesus, became the Holy Spirit. That is not true, that is a heresy. And some people who are teaching that have major platforms. Like, they write books, and they make movies, and they have TV shows. T.D. Jakes is an example of a modalistic heretic. And you should stay far away from him because he's leading whole churches astray. But Jesus Christ is our great God. An elder must be able to teach what accords with sound doctrine and to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. And this here is a very basic doctrine. Jesus Christ is our great God. If you don't believe that, you really can't be a Christian. Say nothing about being an elder in Christ's church. Jesus Christ is our great God, but that isn't all he is. Paul also says there in verse 13 that Jesus Christ is also our great Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, this is basic Christian doctrine, but the idea of Jesus being our great Savior should constantly be on the mind and heart of an elder. This is the core of the proclamation of the gospel. And he goes into further detail about the work of Christ in verse 14. He says it is to redeem and purify. Elders are to remind those under their care, listen to Acts 20 verse 28 again, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. To redeem and to purify. 
is Christ's work in being our Savior. Peter similarly reminds the, the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Beloved, you were redeemed and purified by Jesus' own blood. If you are a Christian, if you have claimed the name of Christ, if you have repented and believed, you were redeemed, purchased with Jesus' own blood. Our responsibility is to declare these things to remind you of these truths so that you may be trained, look there in verse 12 again, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to go a little bit deeper here because Paul, Paul doesn't start with the elders' work in the church. Paul doesn't start with the elders' work in the church. He starts in the elders' home. So go back to the first chapter, verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you, the end of verse 5 says. And then he immediately says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Above reproach. This means that in his character, he's to be completely blameless. It doesn't mean he's sinless. It means he's blameless. He's godly. And the very first place that we should see this, the very first recognizable place of his uh, of being above reproach is in his relationship with his wife. He is to be the husband of one wife, Paul says. Literally, a one-woman man. Now, I want to clarify something right here. This is not something that is unique to elders. That's not something that's unique to elders. In fact, that's a pretty low standard. Right? He's to be a one-woman man. Especially in light of what Paul said in Ephesians, which was written as instruction for all Christian husbands, not just the elders. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 25. Here's the standard for... Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the, the wife see that she respects her husband. And so at a very bare minimum, elders are to be declaring these things to their wives. All husbands are told to love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
Elders are especially to be one-woman men, but that's a pretty minimum standard. We're to be declaring these things to our wives so the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. And we're to be declaring these things not just with our mouths, but with our godly lives as we give ourselves up for her as Christ did for the church. But this also extends to how the elder treats his children and how they respond to him. It says his children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now the ESV, the English Standard Version that I use there, um, uses the word believers. A better translation is actually probably faithful. And debauchery, that's an old English word that's similar to prodigal or really depraved. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, we would have used the term party animal. That's really what it means. I don't, and not in a good way either. I don't, know that, I don't know that the kids still say that these days. His children are not open to the charge of debauchery or being party animals, nor are they open to the charge of insubordination. It means that they're not unruly or openly disobedient. They're not unruly, openly disobedient, depraved party animals. Now hear this very carefully. This again is not a particularly high standard. In fact, all Christian kids have a higher standard than this. And all Christian kids ought to have Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 memorized. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. You may live long in the land. The elders' kids are not to be um, more exceptionally depraved than the rest of the kids in the church. That's really what this means. But they're not held to a higher standard than the rest of the kids either. This is really speaking more to the father's leadership than it is to the kids' obedience. But I just want to clarify, I want to make sure that we understand Maddie and Maya and Charlie and McKenna and Wes and Zach and Brannon and Kyle and Danny and Carly. We don't expect anything from you from them, and we do the rest of the kids in here. We don't, right? Not one amen right there. We just expect faithfulness. We expect obedience for those who are still under the authority of their parents. And for two elders, we still have kids under our authority, and for two, they're off and married. And so the relationship has changed. But they are still to honor their father and mother. But we don't expect anything more from them than we expect from everybody else. Honor your father and mother. And the task of an elder is to declare these things. To declare these things even to your kids. Again, verse 12. Or 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is, this is 
what it means to be a father right here. We are training our children to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. At this point in Paul's list of character qualifications there in chapter 1, he becomes a little bit more general. So uh, these pertain to all of the elders' relationships from this point on, not just his family. He starts with his wife, mentions the children, and then he goes to all of the relationships. So look at beginning in verse uh, 7. So chapter 1, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now the first part of this, verses 7 and 8, again, is actually a pretty low standard. Verse 7 doesn't describe some kind of super-Christian. Look at it again. He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. That does not describe a super-Christian. Verse 8 describes an average, ordinary Christian growing in his faith. One who is being trained by the grace of God to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly life. And so the elders are to declare these things. That's verse 9. That's where this distinction here kind of comes in, is that the elder is to declare these things. The elder is a couple steps further down the line. He is able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He's able to rebuke those who contradict it because he's a man of God's word, because he understands what God's word says, because he reads God's word, because he lives God's word and breathes it, because he's been teaching his children because he's been leading his wife. This is the great task, the great work of an elder. He gives instruction in sound doctrine. He declares the gospel starting at home. And in the context of Titus, he's talking specifically about within the church. Notice the the covenant language of chapter 2, verse 14. Just before he says, declare these things, he, he makes the statement to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That's the church. That's God's covenant language. That's what he's doing. Purifying for himself a people for his own possession. So look at this progression through Titus. In chapter 1, verse 9, we read, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things. Declare that the grace of God has appeared. The elder is to remind, to encourage, to lead his wife in the gospel, his children, the church. Chapter 2, he talks about olders and and youngers, even those who are prone to wander. Because, Because listen again to Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
this is Christ's church. And because the Holy Spirit has made these elders overseers, we're simply recognizing God's work. Because he has done this, the elder here is commanded to then not only declare these things, but to exhort and rebuke with all authority, he says in verse 15. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now, of course, those commands, exhort, rebuke, they're connected to the, to the declaration of these things. But in both exhortation and in rebuking, there's a little bit more emotion. There's a little bit of, of a greater sense of urgency than there is in just simple declaration. So let's define our terms. When he says declare these things, exhort and rebuke, to exhort is actually, it's actually from the same Greek word that some of you might be familiar with. That word is paraclete. It means comforter or helper or advocate. And that word is used twice in John chapter 14. It's used in verse 16 and verse 26. Let me read them to you. You will probably be familiar with them. Jesus says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Then in verse 26, he says, But the helper, that's the word, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here in chapter 2, verse 15, the word's used as a verb. Jesus uses it in, in John chapter 14 as a, as a noun describing the work of the Holy Spirit. He's a helper or a comforter. In verse 15, it's a verb, and it means to do the work of aiding, of helping, of comforting and encouraging. And again, this is to start at home. The elder is first to help and comfort and encourage and exhort his wife, then his own children. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, in, in speaking of this, says this, The elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So let, me in, let me let you in on a little secret. None of the elders of this church, none of them, none of them refer to their wives as anything like the old ball and chain. They don't do it. And, and guys, it's not even funny anyway. So don't do it. But these guys don't do it. And when the elders get together to pray, these are the kinds of things that they ask for prayer for, for their kids and their grandkids, that they would help and comfort and encourage them in the gospel. They're all uncomfortable, I just told you that. But that's the truth. Now here in Titus chapter 2, there's a whole series of, of calls for exhortation. This kind of help and comfort and aid. Let me read some of these. Look at verse 2, Titus 2.2. 2. Older men, this is an exhortation, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, 
with all due respect to our friends in like the holiness movement, you cannot shame or legalismize older men, for example, into doing these things in verse 2. And trying to do so only really breeds bitterness. You end up with bitter old men who may appear to be dignified and self-controlled to outsiders, but it's pretty obvious that they're, so many are not sound in faith. They're not sound in love. They're not sound in steadfastness. They're just keeping their own laws and often demanding that you keep them as well. But in contrast to this, in contrast to just making laws that just work on our actions and our outward self-control, in contrast to all of this, the elder is to, to help and, and aid and encourage, as, as Paul tells Timothy, with all patience and teaching. Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And, and church, this is long-term work. This is a lifetime of ministering to one another. It is week in, week out. And to be honest... The care of souls is really hard work because look at that next word, rebuke. He says rebuke, exhort and rebuke. This is the the negative aspect of the command to exhort. To rebuke means to convince of error, to refute. And sometimes it means chasing off wolves. Again, I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 20. I've read 28, but listen to 29 and 30. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. An elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. Sometimes that rebuking is more gentle, like Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18, taking, taking Apollos aside and, and explaining to him more accurately the ways of Jesus. Sometimes it more, looks more like Paul opposing Peter to his face because he stood condemned, Galatians tells us. Sometimes it looks like what he writes about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20. Just listen to this. He says to Timothy, he says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's actually the same kind of language that he uses in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he's talking about church discipline. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, this man that was living in immorality, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
exhort and rebuke with all authority, Paul says. This is hard work. This is lose your friends for the sake of the purity of the church work sometimes. This is gospel work. And sometimes it's public. Most of the time it's private. This is the stuff that causes the daily pressure of me of all my anxiety for all the churches, as Paul will write. But this is the work of an elder, declaring the gospel to people, exhorting and rebuking them, rebuking, exhorting them to do right, rebuking them when they do wrong. But we can't miss that next statement. With all authority. Beloved, elders have actual authority over church members. That's Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. This means that the things that we say, sometimes the things that we say, especially the messages from the pulpit, they're not mere suggestions. They're commands of God sometimes. We're reading it from the scriptures. But I want to be really clear. The authority of the elder, whoever it is, it has a source. It's not my name. The source of any authority of any elder is not in how long he served in authority or, or even the badge that he might happen to carry in his job. The source of his authority is found really in two things. Primarily, and I want to stress this, first and foremost, it is found in the Word of God. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here's what this looks like played out. Just turn back one page, <clears throat> probably. 2 Timothy 4, just verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, I charge you, and by the way, He's been talking in every single chapter in 2 Timothy about the authority of God's word, okay? And he gets to chapter four and he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For that time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And even verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The, el the authority of the elder is rooted only in God's word, primarily, first and foremost, in God's word. And then flowing out of the primary source of authority is the, the life and character of the elder. It's rooted in God's word, but flowing out of that is the life and character of the elder, if it is rooted in God's word. Again, just back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse, verse 11. Command and teach these things, Paul says. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. There is a, I've read a couple times this morning or quoted, um, submit to your leaders, Hebrews 13, 17. There's an important verse that comes before that. It really is key to understanding why we are to submit to our leaders. It's verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13. And it says this, we have to read these things together. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Then he says, and you have to read that before you read verse 17, or you end up with authoritarianism. Then he says in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. for They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The elder must display a life and a faith that is worthy of imitation, that reflects God's word, that reflects a changed heart and mind, a person, a man who's being transformed. And that's where this final statement of Titus 2.15 comes in when he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. And then he says, let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you. Not because the elder is going around wielding his authority. Not because he, but rather because he's living a life worthy of regard. It is a joy to serve this church. Today, the first Sunday in January, um, marks the eighth year of my ministry here. Um, We've completed seven full and good years here at Logansville, and there have been some hard times. There were some lean years, but those years are long gone. And this morning, as Steve uh, Crum officially joins the elders of this church, I'm asking three things of you. Three things. The first, don't disregard the elders. Hold them to the standard of God's word. Not just the minimum standards. Hold them to the standard of us, not just them, us, to the standard of God's word. Regard them because it is our task to keep watch over your souls. But secondly, pray for us. The very next verse, Hebrews 13, 18, after he tells them to submit and that they're going to keep watch and that they will have to give an account, he says this, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And so pray for the elders of this church. Pray for us regularly. Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 17 to 19, Paul finishes up his letter uh, and he says this. He says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And he's talking to the church. He's talking to you. He's talking to Christians, to us. 
He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray that for the elders of this church, for me, Steve, Chad, and Lyman. Pray that for us. And then third, devote yourself to good works. Devote yourselves to good works. Several times in Titus, he mentions this phrase, good works. Titus chapter 3, verse 8, for example. The results of all of these things, the results of the work of the elders declaring and exhorting and rebuking and, and, and the congregation not disregarding them, and he reminds them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. And then down in verse 8, as he gets to the, the crux of this, he says the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Devote yourselves to good works which is the result, really, of the gospel taking root in your life. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Well, let me read verse 10, too. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, you have three things. Devote yourself to good works, pray for us, and please do not disregard the elders. I'm going to ask the elders to come on up to the stage here this morning.